Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I believe that the time has come for you and me to act like the psychedelic people that we are. And by that, I mean it's time for us to manifest our minds and ask ourselves why we believe the things that make up our view of the world today. In my opinion, it's time to rethink everything about what we believe and the ways in which we live our lives each day. Now, the title of today's podcast is a quote from a young woman who I got to know last year and is someone who I believe has an important message for us all. To begin with, please pay close attention to the exact language of the quote, which is, we cannot have a pacified movement. Now, before I continue with my comments and introductions to the talks that I'm going to play, I want to play the first part of this quote in order to put it into better context. Now, Coalition is building a plan for what it looks like to begin to set right the things that have been stolen. Stolen land, stolen peoples, stolen resources over and over again for a very long time. I feel inspired when I think about the Freedom Summers, where people spent their entire summer in the streets fighting for justice, fighting for equity. This system is going to try to go back to the way it was before COVID. It's going to try to force y'all back into your jobs, back into your rhythm, and make you forget the reason you got into the streets in the first place. I need you to remember. We need you to keep the fire. We need you to stay in the streets. Brother Y. King laid out the plan. What I want to give you is an encouragement to keep up the fight. This city, this county is going to try to give us concessions, reforms to pacify our movement. We cannot have a pacified movement. As Nikita just said, this system is going to try and go back to where it was before COVID. They are going to try and give us concessions, reforms to pacify our movement. We cannot have a pacified movement. Now please note that she did not say it wouldn't be a peaceful movement, only at this time there is no room for more pacification. That statement was made during the ongoing demonstrations in Seattle that have declared a six-block area of their city to be an autonomous zone. The mayor of Seattle has called it a block party, but that fearful little creature who is hiding out in the basement of the White House claims that Seattle has been taken over by anarchists and if they aren't all moved out, he's going to send in the army. I don't have to point out the irony of Bunker Boy in the White House, surrounded by tall metal fences and defended by heavily armed troops inside the fence, where this military force is camping on the White House grounds for the first time since the Civil War. On top of that, many of these stormtroopers are not wearing any identifying insignia, which means that they must be part of a black shirt secret police force hiding among us. So, Bunker Boy can declare an autonomous zone around the White House, but we the people can't have a peaceful block party? Is that what this nation has come to? Unfortunately, the answer is yes. Recently, I watched a documentary titled LA-92, 
which is about the riots that ensued in Los Angeles after the police were given absolution by the powers that be for beating Rodney King 56 times. 56 times those heavy police batons beat on him while he was lying helpless on the ground. It's really amazing that those savage police officers didn't kill him. And yet, those officers suffered no consequences. How about Trayvon Martin, Freddie Gray, Laquan McDonald, and over a thousand other people of color who have been murdered in cold blood by police in this country during the past 10 years? When will enough be enough? That's the question that each and every one of us must ask ourselves today. Now that blockhead in the White House is calling the defenders of the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle anarchists. Yet they are exactly the opposite because they are there trying to enforce the law and order that the police department has failed to deliver to all the citizens in the city, not just to the rich white people. Now when I saw that vile man's tweet about the Seattle protesters, I also noticed that in the same feed someone had posted that one minute clip I just played of Nikita Oliver speaking at the Seattle demonstration. And that was when I knew that I had to speak up here. You see, I got to know Nikita Oliver last year when we were both speaking at the Convergence Conference on Orcas Island, and I consider her to be one of the most outstanding people that I've ever had the honor to meet. So I thought that you should also know more about one of the leaders of the Seattle demonstrations and hear what she has to say with, well, without the editorializing which the mainstream media tries to label the protesters. Nikita didn't just happen to be at the protest and stand up to speak. Nikita Oliver has been standing up for justice for her entire life, and in fact in 2017 she ran for mayor of Seattle and only lost her primary race by 1,070 votes. Needless to say, Nikita Oliver is well known in Seattle. However, there is one more thing you should know about Nikita. Not only is she a powerful leader and a great speaker, in my opinion she's also one of America's leading poets. Now I'm going to play three talks of hers in today's podcast. One of them is a TED Talk that she gave four years ago, and one is her poem, Black Lives Matter. But the first talk I'd like you to listen to with me is the talk that she gave in March 2019 at the Convergence Conference on Orcas Island. Nikita is just is an activist, an organizer, organizing for the No Youth Jail, which was a movement last year around a new detention center being built in Seattle. But I'll let her speak for herself, yo. This woman is powerful, and please welcome her to the stage. Thank you. I'm going to let you take this. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Good morning, y'all. Peace. Are we good? I think we're good. All right. If y'all would do me a favor... I literally got here last night while y'all were partying and um, flew in from Ann Arbor, Detroit area. And so a moment to ground would be great. Can y'all do that with me? All right. If you could get in a comfortable position wherever you're sitting, ideally being able to feel your feet or your back on whatever you're sitting. And if you feel comfortable closing your eyes, You would also do that. I invite you to take a deep breath, as deep as you can for this first round. And I want to remind us that we're standing on native land. 
and that I live in the Coastal Salish Territories and the city named after Chief Seals on Duwamish, Suquamish land. And as you release that breath, I want you to thank the land for allowing you to be here. And I want you to remember the people who are not here because we are here. Then I invite you to take a second deep breath farther past the first. And I want you to connect with your own present and generational history, the people you come from, ancestors that you want to acknowledge and maybe ancestors you aren't ready to acknowledge and invite them to be here with you in this place as you release your breath. And then I invite you to take a third breath farther past the first two. And I want you to find something that is joyous or full of levity. And I want you to Share that breath with the room. Because air and breathing, like story, are things that we all share whether we want to or not. And it's important that we find ways to give joy to ourselves and each other. When you are ready, feel free to open your eyes. Let's go down to the river to pray, studying about those good old days, and who shall wear the golden crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, family, let's go down. Let's go down. Don't you want to go down? Oh, family, let's go down. Down to the river to pray. I can hear my auntie in the back of the chapel singing. My Baba leans over to me and she says, baby, let's go down to the river to pray. We make our way down the mountainside to the valley below. She tells me to see where the water settles, that it puts itself in the place where it's most needed, that it starts in the sky above, makes its way down the mountainside into the valley below, reminds me that my body is made mostly of water, tells me that I must learn to move like water, over, around, or through a thing if I have to. She tells me that water, my body, and justice are one and the same thing. Says justice is just us being just us. Without us, there is no justice. And just in case I missed it, she says it again. She says, justice is just us being just us. Without us, there is no justice. Without us, there is no resistance. Without us, the system persists in its defiance, dividing us further from the divinity that is our unity with Mother Earth, dividing us further from the divinity that is our unity with each other. That's when cash rules everything around me, as the man is steadily auctioning off stock in my body, blocking my attempts to break free. Understand. Understand, there can be no fair trade agreement when black bodies are still sold as stocks and bonds and jail cells are selling out as politicians are building their wealth in these black and brown bodies. Markedly marketed, targeted, murdered extrajudiciously with impunity, not just locally but globally by the same hands that stole my people from our homelands, the same hands that brought us to someone else's homelands, the same hands that ripped those people from their homelands, fed us to the homelands, and then sell us back our homelands overprocessed and overpriced till we become underfed. But yo, 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 I come from a resilient people. 
are still living people, are still here people in the land of the slave, the home of the braves. Shit, I keep getting that wrong. The land of the free, the home of the braves. Did anyone else notice that we erased the braves amongst us? Did anyone else notice that we do not tell their stories or their history? Did anyone else notice that we do not create space for the braves to speak for themselves? Did anyone else notice that the rivers around us run red with blood? Did anyone else ask? Nah, we don't ask so they don't have to tell the truth. The truth is these politics, politics, many ticks, blood-sucking politicians were the only thing redder than their fangs or these blood-stained hands. Look at them elbow deep in the cookie jar. Let's call it capitalism. Who pays the toll for this feudalism? The 10% prosper on profits while the rest of us race to the bottom in chains and body bags to be buried much more than six feet deep beneath more fair trade agreements where the only thing fairly traded is our rage against this machine, a machine that would have us believe you can never have enough. There is not enough. You are not enough. But see, enough is 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 enough. And we say it is enough if we'd only share. My Baba brings me back to center, tells me to look at the water, ask me what I see. I think it's a trick question, but I answer honestly. I tell her I see my reflection. I see myself in the water, and she says, baby, that's right. You see yourself in the water. She says, understand that first you must learn to love the woman in the water because justice is what love looks like in public, and if you do not love yourself, you cannot love anyone else. She brings me back to center, reminds me that my body is made mostly of water, That justice is just us being just us. Without us, there is no justice. Without love, there is no justice. And when we love, there is truly more than enough. appreciate that. Thank you for the, the warm welcome, y'all. Um, I start with that poem, Justice is Just Us, when I think about what it means to have more humanistic policies or really creation-based ways of thinking about governance, because honestly, governance is not just about us humans. It's actually about the whole of creation. We cannot eat money and we cannot drink oil, right? So we have to do things thinking holistically about the ecology of what we live in. And that ecology starts first and foremost with understanding how love and justice work. I got a few notes because I want to make sure I said everything I wanted to say in 16 minutes and 33 seconds. <laughs> the thing about love involves uh, loving our whole selves first. We cannot achieve a healthier governance structure if we are not willing to truly grapple with the wholeness of our present and generational history. I started our first breath by acknowledging the land. There was a people here, peoples here, before we were here. And whether we want to grapple with it or not, some of us come 
and exist here because of colonialism. I have a complicated history because part of me exists here because of colonialism and the other part of me exists here because of a history of enslavement. I can't choose which ancestors I bring to this story. They're already chosen for me, right? And if I want to accept half but don't want to take the other half, I'm actually choosing not to accept my whole self. If I don't accept my whole self, I cannot love my whole self. If I cannot love my whole self, I cannot love all of you. If I cannot love all of you, then I cannot be justice. I cannot be what love looks like in public. That's what a a healthier, humanistic, creation-based governance system looks like. It has to start with us having love. And to have love, we have to have whole stories. When we were talking about the breath, or thinking about the breath, or being in our breath. Stories are like breath. They're like breathing. They're like air. Whether you want them around you or not, we're all playing a role. Some of those roles we've chosen. Some of those roles were given to us. But a role can be taken off. You can only take it off if you know you're wearing it, though. Similar to what, what our elder before us, Donna, was talking about when it comes to how we invest our money, when it comes to the systems that we live in, if we don't acknowledge them or understand them, we can't do something different. So I'm going to do another poem. Is that okay? (laughs) When I tell people I'm a boxer, they almost always ask me the same three questions. One, do you get hit? Two, but does it hurt? Three, do you ever bleed? And I'm thinking, duh. It's boxing. But my mother raised me right, so I say, yes, I get hit. Sometimes it hurts, and every now and again, I bleed. And they go, you see, most people are afraid of blood. Most people are afraid of seeing blood. Most people are most afraid of seeing their own blood, so I tell them this is not the first time I've held my own blood in my hands. Watch the red droplets pull after a string of fighting words are smashed hard against my face. I'm learning boxing and life are really not that much different. My coach keeps telling me, Nikita, you got to learn to keep your eyes up. But truth is, I still haven't figured out how to keep my head up. So as coach cleans me up, I stare into the carnage, settled into the folds of my flesh, the looking glass in my family tree, and I think, dang, is this all that I'm made of? Now, see, Muhammad Ali said, they can make penicillin out of moldy bread, and they sure can't make something out of me. So tell me my blood, my body, what I'm made of so I may know exactly what I could be made into. Spare me no record of wrongs that I might not become a broken record repeating my family's history time and time again. Let me open every closet in this house because I am sure there are more closets in this house for me to hide my own skeletons. Tell me about my mother's father, how he liked white sheets in the dark of night, his cross set ablaze and burning in the eyes of little girls that look no different than me, how he liked his bottle empty and his woman silent. Tell me. How my mother's mother filled up all of the empty and the silence. How she built herself up a broken home for my mama. Show me my mama. Little girl huddled on a tear-drenched floor beneath a roof too holy to shelter her from the downpour of belts and hands. Tell me a sharecropper's story. A back-breaking work and empty stomachs filled to the brim with Negro spirituals. Let me hear my baba sing our spirituals. She'd be like, wait in the water, just Wait in the water, children. Can you hear her singing? How she raised her children up 
high above corn and cotton and taught them to flee the fields of Louisiana for the rubber factories of Indiana before they could be plucked. Let me see the glint of promise on their brows as their hearts beat hard against dreams. Flex like rubber, melted down to once again feel how cotton, plastic, feel no different in your palms when your bootstraps still refuse to fit this so-called American dream. Please show me one dream. How black and white have been the makings of a classic movie. Show me the stars in my parents' eyes when they found out they were going to have this sweet but sick little baby and my mother. Once again finds herself in a corner, but this time on a cot in a hospital alone. And my father, so used to fleeing danger, he cannot figure out how to stay firmly put. Teach me how to stay firmly put. Remind me I'm a fighter. I'm a boxer. That there is no rot or rust or mold that I cannot transform. That rot and rust and mold have been made into medicine. Remind me I am my own medicine. I am my own medicine. I am my own medicine. And you, who also have rot and rust and mold, you too are your own medicine. And together we are the greatest medicine we could ever need. Thank you. Thank you. I wish I could just take y'all with me everywhere. Uh, So the end of that poem is We Are Our Own Medicine. It's my story. At least it's my story how I understood it when I wrote that piece. Our stories, when we take them in whole, when we accept them in whole, The good and the bad parts become the thing that cures our ailments. I believe the same is true of society. Our unwillingness to grapple with our whole history makes it very hard for us to build government structures that actually honor whole people because we don't see whole people. And what are politics for but for people? What is a city for but for people? What is governance for but for people? And if we're not treating people as whole, we're never going to build holistic, healthy structures. Now, I want to give you, because we're in nature, an example of something we can dig through. Uh, The dandelion. I love dandelions. I love them so much, my landlord hates them. I want them to know dandelions are great. Because you pull up a dandelion, and inevitably it comes back. It does not come back as one. It usually does not come back as two. It might come back as three or more. Dandelions come back in mass. As people, we can learn from dandelions. There is a system that's been constructed based on our story and our history that wants to pull us up. Sometimes we give in to that system. How can we learn to come back in mass? The second lesson I take from the dandelion is it's been told it is a weed. Why can't it be a flower? We could call it something different. We could see it for what it is. It is beautiful. Dandelions are actually quite beautiful. This is why children love dandelions. You can blow them all over the place. (laughs) Right? So realizing that sometimes we are calling something a thing that it's not. Words have power. I believe that words are spells. If you cast a spell on a thing that, it, that it's not, you might make it into that thing. But if you start to speak something different over it, you can create something different. Octavia Butler told us we can use our writing and our words to manifest the world we want to see. 
or we can use our writing or our words to manifest a world we don't want to see. What is law but a bunch of words? The laws that we use to create our governing structure are words. In theory, the one I just gave you, a spell. And we're casting the wrong one. Lastly, the thing about dandelions is dandelions are medicinal. They offer a lot to our bodies that if you know how to treat them right, if you know what to do with their roots, if you understand how they work, they can actually become very healing. So this thing that we've been taught to view as negative actually has a lot of power in it. When I talk about who I am, my identity, as a black queer mixed woman, that identity in our current structure is one that's marginalized. That is what it's been given in terms of what's been casted over it. How do I reclaim the medicine of who I am? How do I use it to then treat our social structure? In the Seattle People's Party, it is our belief that when we pull from the margins of society and we lift from the bottom because of the way the society is currently structured, we actually make the whole of society healthier. My resilience, my identity, my knowledge and understanding of the worst impacts of this system, while I wish I hadn't had to go through that to get that, actually becomes medicinal for how we change and restructure our society. That means some people got to get out the way. I don't want to push or force no one out the way. That's not how I want to use this, this medicine. So there has to be a request made. This is why knowing your story is important, being able to identify your own medicine. Your medicine might mean moving where you're at, readjusting your role, renaming the story that you know. And lastly, we want to get to a place of health. What are the first four letters of the word health? Heal. We cannot have a healthy governance structure until we learn how to heal. As individuals, as communities, as neighborhoods, as cities, as counties. And that means going back to the very beginning of knowing our whole story. Telling it in all of its beauty, in all of its ugly, in all of its pain. So you can't heal someone or something if you cannot accurately identify what's wrong with it. So first, we have to be truthful. We also make the mistake oftentimes of thinking that healing means that it will not come, that it will come without pain. Y'all, healing is painful. If you break a leg, you get a cut, if, if that cut gets infected, the first thing that has to happen is the removal of that infection. Removing infection from a wound is a painful process. And if we look at the state of things right now, we've been living in the midst of a wound that has been festering for a very long time. There's a lot of infection to pull from it. And as that infection is removed and that wound heals, we want feeling to return to it. That means nerves are restored. And when a nerve is restored to a place that has been wounded, it hurts. Yeah, but sometimes pain is a sign that we're doing the right thing. How do I know this? MLK said that uh, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. 
When you wake up in the morning and you turn on the lights for the first time, you've been, you've been in darkness for however many hours you slept. How does it feel? For most of us, it doesn't feel great, but that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the light. When I think about real love, true love, that is willing to acknowledge a full identity, that is willing to mend wounds, that process, while great, does not always come without pain. And I really think we're in a place of pain, but we're in the kind of trauma right now as peoples, as creation, honestly, where we're still not even willing to acknowledge that this hurts. And we're not even willing to acknowledge what's causing the hurt. And for some of us, or most of us, it is us. And if justice is just us being just us, we have a choice. We can choose to heal and become healthy, or we can continue to live in a festering wound. Healing happens when we choose to be honest and really be able to identify what's causing the wound, what is the wound, and what is the healthy course of action. And that does take all of us. And we don't all play the same role because we haven't all played the same role in creating the system we live in now. So I'll leave you again with justice is just us being just us. Thank you. As you just heard, when Nikita finished her presentation, we were all on our feet giving her a standing ovation. And even though the audience had already heard from Dr. Grobe, Bruce Damer, and Paul Stamets, there was no doubt in anyone's mind but what we had just heard the definitive talk of the conference. And uh, as I was standing there, clapping and cheering, a little voice in the back of my mind suddenly said, Fuck me, I'm the next speaker. (laughs) Needless to say, uh, Nikita Oliver should always be the last speaker on a conference program because, well, it's next to impossible to follow her. And if you wonder what I said, you can listen to my talk in podcast number 599, The Psychedelic Hospice Movement, which, uh, in light of the COVID pandemic, uh, well, I guess it still has some relevance in the world today. Now, uh, to give you an even better insight into Nikita's thinking, here's the TED Talk that she gave four years ago. As you listen with me, I suspect that you will quickly understand how insane the bunker boy in Washington is when he calls her an anarchist. A picture is worth a thousand words. At least that's what I've been told. What I've learned when it comes to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me, goddess, is that the word count is less important than the frame we use to hold the picture. A picture worth words tells a story. The frame determines which part of the story we tell. This is the part of the story we see. How we see becomes how we think, how we think, how we act, how we act makes history. And history teaches us 
That the truth is hard to kill, but a lie well told can last forever, can make whole peoples disappear, can change the sight of a generation, can give an entire country amnesia, make us forget where we come from so we cannot remember where we should be going. History is not was. History is 1968, the Mexico City Olympics, the air thick and wet dangles round their necks, protests build condensation on their brows, hot and heavy. Tommy Smith, USA Gold, Peter Norman, Australia Silver, John Carlos, USA Bronze, two black gloved fists boldly pierce the air and one white face hangs low. His story is not the history we relish. We retell these men in opposition to each other. We cannot see their strength, so we cannot grow stronger together. With all of our words, we miss the point in the picture. We do not understand the frame, new frame. History is not was, it is 1968, the Mexico City Olympics. The air, thick and wet, dangles round their necks, protests, builds condensation on their brows, hot and heavy. Tommy Smith, USA Gold. Peter Norman, Australia Silver. John Carlos, USA Bronze. Statuesque on platform, they stand. They do not speak, but their protest is heard loud and unapologetic round the world. Two black glove fists boldly pierce the air. One white face looks down, his chest brandishing a badge, Olympics for human rights, an organization opposing racism in sports. He knows their fight is not the same, yet they stand up against a common enemy. He does not throw up black power fists, rather relinquishes the right and his white gaze hangs his head, owning the weight of white privilege. These men stood together. Their posture to struggle different, though entangled, their solidarity, an incredible act of resistance erased from our frame. Tommy Smith and John Carlos returned to the United States, banned from the Olympics for life, yet heroes in their own right, and Peter Norman returns to Australia, his protests forgotten everywhere but home. He never runs again. He dies alone. We do not tell the whole story. We cannot be made better by the history we do not know. Truth is, every black history month, for as long as I can remember, I was taught Rosa Parks sat on a bus. As if her sitting was just mere coincidence, just tired feet, just this one time pushed too far over the edge of white supremacy, a split-second decision, impulsive, not planned out at all, just something you might want to do after a long day of work in the South, (laughs) just tired. Once again, our frame her body in action, limited to a seat, and we missed the point, so new frame. It is 1946. The United States Supreme Court determines in Irene Morgan versus the Commonwealth of Virginia that segregation and interstate busing is unconstitutional. March 2nd, 1955, nine months before Mrs. Rosa Parks is arrested for her resisting segregation on buses, there's Claudette Colvin. NAACP youth member, 15 years old, refuses to leave her seat, is arrested, a case is filed, yet she is forgotten in impropriety. 
a 16-year-old unwedded mother in the 1950s makes you unfit to lead a movement, makes your act of resistance less palatable, less deserving, less likely to make change. Yet she is not the only bus resistor we have forgotten. Aurelia Browder, Mary Louise Smith, and Susie McDonald all sat on the bus before Mrs. Rosa Parks. December 1st, 1955. Mrs. Parks is arrested for resisting bus segregation in Montgomery, Alabama. What we are not told is that prior to her resistance on bus number 2857 is that she raised defense funds for Claudette Colvin, serves as the secretary of the local NAACP chapter, is brutalized repeatedly by James Blake, the same bus driver who later forces her to move from her seat for a white man. She, not sitting in the whites-only section, she, sitting in the front row of the colored section, refuses to give up her seat. Not a servant to tired feet. Rather, a 42-year-old dignified black woman, tired of giving in, tired of giving up much more than her seat to white supremacy. She's jailed not once but twice for her role in the Montgomery bus boycott. She's terrorized, forced to leave her home after being fired from her job, moves to Detroit, Michigan, where she lives the rest of her life. And I learn, some things are easier said than done. And some things are said easier than the action required to achieve them, so we do not try to achieve them again. 20 years before Colin Kaepernick, there's Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. He is 24 years old. Born Chris Jackson in Gulfport, Mississippi, it is 1993. He is entering the climax of his NBA career, the pinnacle of a spiritual revelation, the impetus, reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. He converts to Islam, finds peace in the thing that America fears most while simultaneously becoming one of the best and one of America's favorite pastimes. Each season he improves. Each day his faith grows deeper. He questions how ritual and nation take precedence over people and peace. Islam, derived from the root word salam, means peace. When Mahmoud Abdul Rauf refuses to stand for the national anthem, the NBA tells the Nuggets, handle it discreetly. It is not until the trial of Timothy McVeigh, the 1995 Oklahoma City bomber that American basketball fans begin to notice the peacefully sitting Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, not as a basketball player, not as a practicing Muslim, but rather as a terrorist, as a threat to American patriotism. And once again, our sitting becomes explosion. The posturing of black bodies constantly called into question, moved around for America's comfort, patriotism, a cover-up for a nation at war with itself. Before Colin Kaepernick, Abdul Rauf sits in a press conference, calls out the symbol of tyranny and oppression, and once again refuses to stand for the national anthem hours later. The NBA suspends him indefinitely, without pay, citing a rule that requires players, coaches, and trainers to stand in a dignified posture lined up for the U.S. and Canadian national anthem in a country where administrative leave is standard practice when police officers shoot to kill unarmed black bodies sitting and an unarmed black Muslim body will kill your career, burn down your house, make your family a firing range. Mahmoud Abdul Rauf is a part of our story, a part of history that we do not tell, so we relive it over and over and over and over again. 
History is not was. It is 2016 looking a lot like 1968, and I can't help but notice how our bodies carry the same stories as our elders, how we only know justice in part, so our peace is barely parceled together. We, a puzzled picture with missing pieces, make icons of moments we barely understand and say this is the frame for the movement, this is the way it should be. Yet the picture is always greater than we know or greater than we've been told. Who lives, who dies, who tells our story, shapes the past, shapes the present, transforms our future sight and ability to do and be better. We behold the past with a telescope, the present with a microscope, see stars and germs, everything else a blind spot. But what would those stars be without the dark matter around them and those germs without the organisms who carry them? History, like space, is far more vast than we can ever know. Like germs, unseen and ever-present, in, on, and around us. They change us transform us for better or for worse. Yes, a picture is worth a thousand words, but it is the frame that makes all of the difference. Although I only had a few conversations with Nikita over several shared meetings during the Orcas Conference, My memory of her is far from the impassioned speeches that we've heard. When I think of Nikita, the first things that I remember are her eyes and her smile. And if you ever have an opportunity to meet her, my guess is that you won't forget those smiling eyes that are so filled with love for us all. Above all else, it is my belief that Nikita Oliver is a peaceful, gentle person, and as such, she is one of the best possible leaders that we can find for these times that we are now trying to live through. So I'm going to close today's podcast with Nikita reading her poem, Black Lives Matter. Do you see the boy in the corner? Yeah. The one with the prettiest blue eyes. Do you see how he carries well-intentioned honesty like a badge, how entitlement wears his shoulders like a mantle and privilege, well, privilege holds his hands. Do you see how he speaks to the class like royalty, looks at me like target practice, fires off Nikita? I'm just being honest. But when you say black lives matter, I feel like you're calling me racist. I feel like he trails off with hesitation. The room cannot hear him, but I can feel his words. They are a pulse on the nation's vein. He's not the only one who thinks like this. He continues, you make me feel guilty for being white. But I didn't shoot the boy in the streets. I don't want his blood on my hand. This is not my weight to carry. See, all of a sudden his words hit me. I am shell-shocked rubble, heavy with the prayers of ancestors and uttered sounds that I need to understand. I am slave ship, chattel and parcel thrown overboard when my flesh cannot complete the journey. I am stolen, mouth that would 
tell you my story, but history is not mine when I'm still auction block property. Runaway slave, I am sharecropped land stolen by genocide and broken treaty. I am prisoner of war. I am black boy blood on pavement. Black girl face down in dirt. Black trans woman skirt shirt torn. I am exposed. I am hands up. Please do not shoot us while we are carrying our children through underground railroads. I am fist fro power. Black beauty and Selma sun. Heat beat down on pain so we can march again and again and again. Each time it's still the same. They say give it time and time things will change. But I cannot control this riot. And my skin when waiting burns like pepper spray. Like blunt object. Like police baton shoved in my face as a tired beast of a mask. Showing you just how much I need to be free of this boy. In the corner still waiting for me to wash his hands but I cannot let him open this can of worms go fishing for answers and skin that he will never swim see these waters are too rough this boat has never been safe I don't want to be another throwaway another castaway another mad diary of a black woman alone in a room with no one who understands why the streets are wailing why the air tastes of iron why the humidity and Ferguson drips like blood on New York concrete with roses caught in the cracks they say I cannot breathe they cannot breathe we cannot breathe so I become fire and burn billowing tower of smoke and civil disobedience I become revolution was this country not built on revolution on gunfire on protests on the backs of black bodies ripped from black wombs they say pull yourself up by your bootstraps black girl but the ones I was given were not fit so I made my own I called them black lives matter is not your indictment this is not your prosecution please do not make my skin your conviction I have not needed nor have I ever wanted a white guilty plea. When I say black lives matter, I'm not trying to take anything from you. I'm simply trying to dig deep below the muck and the mire and the bodies and the streets to find the seed of hope that still persists to remind myself that my life matters too. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So if you are now ready to stand up and be counted yourself, maybe a good start would be to share this podcast with a few of your white friends. Our black friends and neighbors are already well aware of what Nikita Oliver is saying. So now it's time for the rest of us to get on board as we begin to rebuild our world. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends.